Hey everyone, I hope you've all had a fantastic start to the week so far. This is Finn Weekly, where I provide weekly updates on what's happening in the world of finance and the economy. I'm Steve Coffrin, and today is Wednesday, August 30th, 2023, and I'm a little furry. Usually I shave this thing a few times a week, but it's been a while, so I'm feeling a little scruffy right now. Anyways, there's a lot of news to cover this week, from geopolitics to personal finance, so let's just dive right into it. Starting with the latest on what we know about Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia being among the countries invited to join the BRICS, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, group of emerging markets. Now, historically, these countries have all had close ties to the United States, so this move signifies a desire for them to boost their own international standing. If they follow through and do join the BRICS starting next year, we're going to see a lot more strategic moves from them to safeguard their own economic interest. Now, while this might seem like a play to counterbalance the dominance of the US as far as global economics and trade go, I wanna remind you of the complexities that go along with restructuring global alliances and economic pathways and recap on what the implication of these strategic moves might involve. Wow, that was kind of a mouthful. Okay, so first of all, if we look at the relationship between all these countries, China and India are major trade partners for Saudi Arabia and the UAE as well. In fact, their trade has skyrocketed to $175 billion last year, 35 times higher than what it was just 20 years ago at $5 billion. Secondly, we know that the US buys some oil from several Middle Eastern countries, but Saudi Arabia and the UAE are also major oil providers for Russia and China too. But does this mean that the Gulf nations will just abandon the US dollar? That's unlikely. Despite being major players in the global oil markets, their currencies are tied to the US dollar and most of their imports are in dollars, providing them with economic stability and growth. So you may be wondering, is there a downside? While there's many positive things that come with trying to assert a more independent international stance, this shift raises some questions about currency dynamics, energy negotiations, infrastructure funding, and the evolving global power landscape. And while these new relationships may promise economic resilience, there are definitely risks that come from over-relying on a small number of allies. All I'm saying here is that they're going to need to balance their opportunities with their challenges as they reshape their global relationships. Next up, there's more trouble in China as major banks plan to lower interest rates on mortgages and deposits in a desperate effort to stimulate economic growth. State-owned banks are expected to announce rate cuts soon for the majority of the country's $5.3 trillion outstanding mortgages, focusing on first home loans. In addition, we also know that some banks will be dropping their deposit rate requirements for the third time this year. Yep, you heard that right. One of the big reasons we're seeing this happening is China is trying to boost consumer spending, attract investments to the stock market, and ease bank profitability concerns. Lately, investor confidence has dwindled due to ongoing property and deflation issues. Now, remember folks, around 90% of China's mortgages are for first homes. So reducing deposit rates could help banks protect profits while offering lower rates to home buyers. Now, I know what you're thinking, Steve, isn't that a good thing? 
Well, there are some risks, including the possibility of some individuals being unable to repay their loans and concerns about local governments accumulating excessive debt. In fact, in June, many cities chose to lower the minimum mortgage rates, resulting in an average rate of 4.11%. If a large number of people switched to lower rate loans, banks could experience an 8% decline in earnings, which would spell very bad news. And staying in China now, one of their biggest property developers, Evergrande, saw its stock crash by a whopping 87% when trading finally resumed in Hong Kong after a 17-month halt. The reason? Well, this week Evergrande revealed more losses and postponed a meeting with her investors. Now, that's not a good move on their part. So why exactly did this happen? Well, Evergrande is in a bit of a financial jam, reporting a loss of 33 billion yuan for the first six months of this year, after reporting a whopping 582 billion yuan loss over the previous two years. But this situation tells a much bigger story about China's housing market. Since China decided to make homes more affordable and safer by controlling the real estate business, things have been rough for developers like Evergrande. They're losing money, facing debts bigger than their assets, and are putting the brakes on projects which are stifling opportunities for employment, business, investment, and China's overall recovery. Now, just to emphasize my point, we also learned of another China-based developer, Country Garden, who reported between $9 and $12 billion in losses since the beginning of this year. Ouch. As for Evergrande's total losses, for the first half of this year, they were about 39 billion yuan. Their debts are also huge at 2.4 trillion yuan. If you compare that to their assets, which total 1.7 trillion yuan, and you add about another trillion yuan that they owe in debt to people and companies, the picture isn't looking pretty. While they scramble to reorganize their debt, the folks who lent them the money now have less than four weeks to think about all of this and decide on a game plan moving forward. Internationally, what happens there could affect investor confidence in Chinese assets and in the worst case, lead to a contagion effect impacting global investment sentiment. I'll be here to give you all the breakdown as things continue to unfold. Now, moving on, something else that caught my attention this week is a worrying money trend in the United States. People are using personal loans to hide their struggles with credit card debt. In other words, more folks are taking out personal loans to consolidate their credit card debts. At first, this seemed effective. Data from TransUnion shows a significant 57% debt drop from April 2021 to September 2022. However, within just 18 months, those debts shot back up to almost where they were at before. This is happening during a tough period with high overall debt, interest rates around 20%, and more struggles to make payments on time. Here's the key point to keep in mind. While personal loans often have lower interest rates than credit cards, they could actually worsen the bigger financial issue. What people do after using personal loans matters a lot. Rising prices and limited government stimulus support are pushing more people towards credit cards. But as interest rates rise, this approach becomes trickier to manage in the long run because then people are burdened with paying back interest on the debt they owe. And if you remember, GDP or gross domestic product, our overall economy, that's our measure of all the outputs of goods and services within our national border, that GDP is primarily driven by consumer spending. In fact, 
In the United States, 65% of our economy is driven by consumer spending. So why does that matter? Well, if people are assuming more debt, then that means in the future, when they have to pay back that debt, they're gonna have less disposable income. And therefore, with less disposable income, they're not gonna be able to make those consumer purchases, which will then impact the overall economy and the chances for a strong recovery. Now, let's look at the numbers. Unsecured loan debt, that means debt without collateral, surged to about $232 billion this year, up 21% from the previous year. Similarly, credit card debt reached $1 trillion, a 4.6% increase from the last quarter. And we're seeing a lot of younger adults having an even tougher time, especially since they're going to have to resume paying back their student loans again here soon. So you may be wondering, Steve, what's the solution here? Well, I think it's all about finding a way to keep your debt in check. Now, if you've listened to my other podcasts or you're in my programs, you'll know that I talk about this all the time. So I'm gonna give you two recommendations. The first thing involves looking at debt from a good debt and a bad debt perspective. Good debt is when you use leverage to buy assets that then produce income. And when you produce income from your assets, you can use this to service the debt and build wealth. However, on the other hand, bad debt involves purchasing liabilities, and these liabilities turn into expenses, which then reduces your income. So what is bad debt and what am I talking about here? It's when you go out there and you buy that new car that you can't afford, or when you use a credit card to go buy clothes, or you swipe your visa to go on vacation, and you don't have the money for it, so you're putting it on a credit card. This is bad debt. Like I said, it's just generating more liabilities and it's hurting your financial prospects. Okay, so when you use leverage, if you can use leverage to invest in assets that produce income, that's good. But if your spending is out of control and you're using a credit card or you're using debt to support a lifestyle that just isn't feasible, that's when you're gonna get in trouble. Now look, let me be empathetic here because I know there are a lot of families that are struggling out there and sometimes you're forced to use a credit card in the short term to cover your cost, but it's not a long-term viable option. Okay, the second thing that I wanna recommend is paying yourself first. I've talked about this before too. What I mean is every time you get paid, pay yourself at least 10 to 20%, okay? It could be higher, maybe it's 30% or 40%, or maybe if you have a partner, you save their entire salary. Okay, whatever it may be, you have to pay yourself first. And I'm not talking about paying yourself so you can take this money and then go spend it. Instead, I'm talking about paying yourself so you can invest this money. So transfer the money automatically into your individual brokerage account, invest in your 401k or your IRA, or just save it for a rainy day. Whatever you do, invest in your future. That's what I'm talking about. And if you're paying yourself first, then you can use the rest of the money to pay your bills and to use towards discretionary spending. And here's the interesting thing you will find that if month over month, you're unable to pay your bills after you pay yourself, then you will need to go out there and increase your income. See, most families and most people have an earning problem, not necessarily a spending problem. Now, there are some exceptions. Some people just can't get their spending under control. But for most people, it's an earning problem. And that's why I'm such a huge advocate on financial literacy, because when you can increase your financial intelligence and then you can apply it towards business, that's the other big part of my whole philosophy, then you can start building real wealth. So if you start a business or if you do that side hustle or whatever it may be and you can increase your income, 
then you're gonna have the opportunity to achieve financial freedom and to live a better financial life. So those are my two recommendations. Good debt and bad debt, avoid the bad debt, and then pay yourself first. And last but not least, on a related note, rising interest rates are reshaping how U.S. homeowners use their homes as financial resources. The popularity of cash-out refinancing, where homeowners borrow against their home equity, has plummeted to below 17% of all mortgages, the lowest since 2000. Just a year ago, this type of borrowing made up almost half of all refinances. The change is a result of the Federal Reserve's decision to increase interest rates. When cash-out refinancing was at its peak, the average interest rate for a 30-year mortgage was 4%. Now it's at 6.95%. Although historically around 30% of mortgages have been used for cash-out refinancing, higher interest rates have made that a less attractive option. This has implications for consumer spending and debt management. Remember, consumer spending drives our economy. As this borrowing option loses appeal, homeowners might have to cut back on spending to manage their debts and higher costs. So while U.S. homeowners still have significant equity in their homes, tapping into it has become pricier due to higher interest rates. This change reflects how economic conditions influence personal financial choices and the nuanced relationship between interest rates and borrowing behavior. Okay, so that's a wrap for Finn Weekly. We covered a lot of ground. If you're listening to the audio version of this and you wanna watch the video, you can do that conveniently by downloading the Boosting Your Financial IQ app on the Apple app or Google Play Store. There are a ton of other resources within the app that will help you achieve financial freedom through business and live a better financial life. This video will also be on YouTube. If you're watching it on YouTube, I invite you to do the same thing, download the app, because like I said, there are a ton of great things to help you along your journey. Okay, that's a wrap, that's it for now. I hope you have a great week. Keep learning ambitiously and reach out to me if you have any questions at all, if you have feedback, if you just wanna connect, I'd love to hear from you. Steve at byfiq.com is my email. And in the meantime, take care of yourself. Cheers. Hey, real quick, if you get value out of this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a review. Also, if you want to be featured on the show, send me a recording with your name, your age, where you're from, and your question through a voice note or a video using your smartphone. Then email me the file at hello at byfiq.com. BYFIQ stands for boosting your financial IQ. So once again, it's hello at BYFIQ.com. If selected, I'll give you a shout out and answer your question for you and the entire community. One last thing, if you want access to additional resources that will help you fast track your path to financial freedom, visit BYFIQ.com or download our free app in the Apple or Google Play app store today. Thanks again.